Folks, grab your Bibles there. Um, as Neil's already explained, although we have read from chapter 12, we're going to be dealing with four chapters of Deuteronomy this morning, chapters 12 to 16. Just while you're turning up your Bibles, let me explain something that might reduce the level of distraction in the congregation. You'll see I have a scar on my head. It's not that I was talking when I should have been listening at home and, and Claire's patience finally wore out. Um, we have, we have a, an open staircase in the manse and sometimes we put things in underneath the staircase. So I was reaching in, grabbed something and, and rose up a little bit too quickly. So um, sore, but, but I've survived. So you don't need to worry about the scar on, on my head. So what's the worship like here in Hamilton Road? Have you ever found yourself thinking about that or even articulating that question in a conversation? Uh, maybe you're new around here and you've got a checklist that you're working your way through. Welcome, tick, preaching. Well, I don't know if that will be a tick, but, but anyway. Worship, tick, coffee, tick. Maybe you're somebody who's been here for years and you've been wondering how this community and its gatherings have changed. Maybe you have friends from other churches and occasionally you talk and you compare notes. So what, what is the worship like at Hamilton Road? There are loads of factors that people bring into a conversation about worship. Is it traditional or is it contemporary? Some like it formal, some like it informal. Some love liturgy, some like a freer style. There are preferences about how big the crowd would need to be before I'd, I'd feel excited by it, how emotionally charged it needs to be, or how spirit-led or not it's perceived to be. This morning we're going to think about what it means to choose true worship. And we're going to do that by continuing this series of studies in Deuteronomy. Before we jump into these chapters, I thought it might be useful to show you an overall structure of the book of Deuteronomy, which I haven't really done yet in this series. It hasn't felt important, but, but I think maybe today it does. So there are different ways of dividing up Deuteronomy, but here's the simplest way that I've come across. Chapters one to 12 contain a, an opening speech from Moses. Chapters 12 to 26, uh, a collection of laws. And then chapters 27 to 34, Moses' final speech and his death recorded. We have spent uh, most of our opening eight weeks in that opening speech of Moses. We've really worked through most of the material up until chapter eight. Neil helped us think about that uh, a couple of weeks ago, Choose Gratitude. And this morning, we're, we're jumping to chapter 12. Chapters 9 to 11, by the way, they just bring to a close Moses' opening speech. So now as we move into chapter 12 and beyond, and you'll know this if you're trying to read Deuteronomy, we're into a lot of laws. Please don't panic. We're not going to go through these line by line, law by law. Not only would that not be much fun, but it wouldn't be the right way for followers of Jesus Christ in 2022 to approach this part of God's word. 
There's a lot in these laws that isn't intended for us, at least not directly. We're not Israel in the times of Moses. We aren't on the plains of Sinai about to enter the promised land. Remember what we said before about the laws we're going to find in Deuteronomy. Where they aren't immediately applicable to us, we'll still be looking to discern the core underlying principle behind them. And I think you'll see that uh, today. If you read the 15 laws in the middle of Deuteronomy, you'll see that they deal broadly with three main areas, worship, leadership, and community. So over the next three weeks, we're going to listen in on Moses' invitation to choose true worship, to choose wise leadership, and to choose healthy community. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So this morning, we're going to look at chapters 12 to 16, and we're going to think about Moses' invitation here to choose true worship. Uh, by the way, if you want to keep up with um, reading ahead in Deuteronomy so that you don't miss the, the parts that we aren't reading, read chapter 17 to 21 for next week. 17 to 21. As we look this morning at chapters 12 to 16, we're going to be thinking about worship and we're going to, to notice four things that come to the fore in these chapters. The where the who, the how, and the when of worship. So chapter 12, the NIV heading tells us that this chapter is about the one place of worship. This is the part that we've just read. God didn't want his people worshiping him wherever they chose. Now that might sound a bit weird to us because it's not really one of the questions that's in the forefront of our minds when we think about worship, where we're allowed to worship. We feel free to worship almost wherever we like. But there were good reasons to give care to the place of worship. Look at verse 2. When you go into the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you're dispossessing worship their gods. God wants to protect his people from falling into pagan worship. So he tells them to stay clear of the venues that are associated with this pagan worship. Verses 4 to 5. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you're to seek the place that the Lord your God will choose. So whenever God talks to his people about worship, he addresses the where question. In chapter 13, Moses addresses the who question of worship. Look at the opening verse. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. Throughout the chapter, if you, if you scan it even just now, you'll see that Moses warns of a couple of other instances where somebody else is inviting us to worship other gods. It's a close relative in verse 6, or it's a whole community in verse 12. It doesn't matter, says Moses. 
whether it's a prophet, your brother or your son, the wife whom you love or your closest friend, doesn't matter if it's a village, a town or a whole city inviting you to worship other gods. There's no compromise here. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. So there it is. Our answer to the who question, who is to be the subject of true worship? The Lord your God and him only. We've thought about the where, we've thought about the who of true worship. I said we could learn something about the how in these chapters this morning, and I want to qualify that a little bit before we have a look. We're not in these chapters going to find definitive guidance for exactly how God wanted his people to worship him. It takes quite a lot of chapters, actually, of ceremonial law, law about the temple and sacrifices and priesthood and so on to do that. So we don't, we don't find all the answers to all the questions about how to worship, even for the people of Moses' day. What we don't find either is a liturgy or an order of service that we followers of Jesus Christ in 2022 can just download and use. We don't, we don't find that. That's not here. Even the New Testament doesn't offer that. What we do find here is an insight into the heart of God, and it's a beautiful insight. Chapter 14, have a look with me. There's a section at the start of the chapter where God tells his people what is and isn't supposed to be on the menu. And look at verse 22. He talks to them there about the role of food in worship. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your corn, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. This is quite unusual, isn't it? Moses, tell the people to bring their sacrifices, but tell them that their worship must include feasts and celebrations. They've got to experience my goodness to them with regular parties. Isn't that brilliant? Who knew? It makes me wonder what this passage and passages like it have to say to, to some who've tried to, to make communities of, of God's people into to gray and dreary places. What do they do with this chapter? And it, it just keeps going. It just keeps going. Look at verse 24. It gets even better. We see just how committed God is to making sure that these celebrations take place. He raises a question, what do you do if you live too far away from the place of worship to drag all your crops and your herds along with you for the party? Well, God's thought of that too. Sell your tithe, bring your money with you to the place where the community is gathering, and then, verse 26, <clears throat> use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Isn't that amazing? Who wouldn't want to be part of a community like this? And who wouldn't want to worship a God 
like this. One last thing on this, Moses, God says towards the end of the chapter. Make sure you include the Levites, the immigrants, the fatherless, and the widows. This is my party, and everyone is invited. Wow. Now there's an eye-opener. Something we need to bear in mind when we think of the fullness of Christian worship. We're thinking at this point about the how of true worship. And when we read on in Deuteronomy, we see in chapter 15 rules about canceling debts and about freeing slaves. It seems a bit out of place. Don't, don't let's believe that. Whenever we worship the true God, it changes how we live. God doesn't want people who, who show up on a Sunday for one sort of an experience and then go out on a Monday to Saturday to live an entirely different kind of a life, abusing their employees and ripping off people during the week. No, our worship on a Sunday needs to change our Monday. Our worship in here needs to change our lives out there. One day, as he's addressing a community of Jesus followers in Rome, Paul will tell us to make the whole of our lives an act of worship. Peterson in the message puts it like this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your eating and sleeping, your going to work and your walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. For faithful followers of Jesus Christ, how we live Monday to Saturday is every bit as much an act of worship as this gathering is. If we come back to the text one last time, we find in chapter 16 that God gives his people advice regarding the when of worship. They were to celebrate the Passover, to remember his rescue from Egypt. They were to celebrate the festival of weeks, seven weeks after they begin their harvest. They were to celebrate the festival of tabernacles after they'd finished processing their crops and grapes. The chapter's teaching summarized in verse 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place where he will choose. So God gave his people rhythms to celebrate his grace. He gave them guidance to help them with the question of when they should worship. So without getting at all into the detail, we've seen here how God gave his people guidance on the where and the who, the how and the when of true worship. And all of us are sitting here wondering, so what? What's this got to do with us, followers of Jesus Christ in 2022? We're not bound by a lot of what Moses has taught here in these four chapters. Does this mean that we have nothing to learn then from this part of the book of Deuteronomy? Absolutely not. In behind the specific questions of how and where and when and who to worship, there's a larger global question of the heart 
what's our worship really all about? What are we thinking about in our time with God? What's our motivation? To demonstrate the importance of thinking well about worship, I want to do what we've done in almost every one of these sermons, and that is move from Deuteronomy to another passage in the Bible that can help us interpret it. Flick with me, please, quickly to 1 Kings chapter 12. I think it's page 352. 1 Kings chapter 12. While you're looking, let me give you a bit of context. It's centuries now since Moses has preached his great Deuteronomy sermon. The people have been in the promised land for many generations. They've had their first kings, Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam succeeds him, but he turns out to be cruel and oppressive. So all the tribes of Israel, except the tribe of Judah, rebel against Rehoboam, and they set up a northern kingdom loyal to another king, a king called Jeroboam. Our passage gives us a fascinating insight into the heart of Jeroboam, but also the heart of worship. Picking up in verse 25, Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they'll again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They'll kill me and return to King Jeroboam, Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as the one at Dan to, to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines in the high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the eighth month, the month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Let me lead you on a very simple mini Bible study. Two questions only. What did Jeroboam do? What did he do? Remember what we've just read in those chapters in Deuteronomy. What's Jeroboam just done? He has changed everything that God said was important. The place of worship, no longer Jerusalem, but now Bethel and Dan. The who of worship, no longer the Lord, but two golden calves. 
Are you having a laugh? Golden calves? A king in Israel is inviting people to worship calves? Have we not seen that before somewhere? And how to worship? He appoints his own priests. When to worship? He institutes new festivals. What does he do? He throws God entirely out of the equation and does exactly what he wants to do himself. Second question, why does he do it? He does it because he uses worship for his own ends. In this case, it's for political gain. It's to keep his people with him. Worship under Jeroboam becomes all about him. Here are your gods, O Israel, the gods of his design, gods that he hopes will appeal to the people. And by the way, this isn't just an unfortunate moment in the history of Israel. If you read on through the book of Kings, what you'll discover is that Jeroboam becomes the benchmark of everything that's bad in the king. Bad kings, if you want to say that a king's a bad king, what you do is you label him. You say that he committed the sin of Jeroboam. It turns out that using worship of the true and living God to build a kingdom for yourself is the worst thing that a leader of God's people can do. And still we're wondering, so what? What's this got to do with us? That was Deuteronomy. That was Jeroboam. Friends, this has everything to do with us. The sin of Jeroboam is alive and well today. It has lost none of its allure. Those who lead worship, whether they're ministers or choir masters or preachers or worship leaders, they're all open to the temptation of using worship to make things all about them. I'll call that the danger of celebrity. Those who gather to worship, those in the pews, whether it's our oldest cathedrals or the, the coffee-scented warehouses of the latest hipster, hipster churches, they're all open to the same temptation too, making it all about them. I'll call that the danger of consumerism. Leaders who want to make it all about them. Worshippers who want to make it all about them. The sin of Jeroboam has lost none of its allure. Friends, as I close this morning, I want to close with a plea that we, we will help each other here that we'll help each other to do what above all else we're commanded to do in Deuteronomy, and that is to love God, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and all of our strength. Let's challenge each other to keep growing in our love for God. To do that, we'll have to develop a sensitivity to bad leadership, 
whether it's in ministers or preachers or musicians or singers or anyone else who leads us in worship. Bad worship leaders like Jeroboam somehow will want to make it all about them. I'm not having that. And I don't want you to tolerate it either. I'll tell you why. Because God can't be mocked. He doesn't share his glory with other people. When we have a community where people are intent on drawing glory to themselves, God quietly takes his leave. No matter how big we build it, no matter how bright we turn up the lights, no matter how much the amps buzz, no matter how much we make a show of our biblical orthodoxy, it will be an empty show if those who lead it make it about them. The Bible's verdict over that kind of a church is clear. Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. So let's develop a sensitivity to celebrity leaders who want to make it all about them. But let's be on the lookout too for the kind of consumerism that wants to make it all about me. I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's not loud enough. I find the sermon too long. I find the sermon too simple. I wish our services were more geared towards older people. I wish they were more geared towards younger people. I wish our services would never, ever change. If our service doesn't change, I'm leaving. I think this. I want that. I wish the other. Isn't it beginning to sound like it's really all about me? Brothers and sisters, will you stand guard with me? Will you develop a sensitivity to the heart of our worship? Shall we agree not to tolerate celebrities at the front? Shall we agree not to, to be consumers in the pews? Shall we settle for nothing less than God's presence and his glory among us. Let's choose true worship. Let's pray.